Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And that is Brandon Buller. And uh, yeah, all right, let's give Brandon a hand. Uh, many of you know Brandon. Uh, some of you don't. Brandon and his uh, wife were members here from 2007 to 2014. And Brandon actually served as our music director for quite a few years. So he did what Paul is doing for us now. And um, he is here with us uh, with his family. So make sure that uh, you extend a warm welcome to them today. But uh, Brandon is a graduate of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he's been ministering with uh, Redeemer Presbyterian down in Indianapolis, interested long-term in church planting, and we're very excited to have him bring in the word to us today. So, Brandon, I turn it over to you. Back in New Life, back in Yorktown. Let's see how this goes. You guys can hear me okay, yes? Let's do that. Let me take this off. Uh, yeah, it's really good to be back in Yorktown. I'm finishing up my time uh, with Redeemer, my last semester of college ministry, that's what I do there, um, as well as live stream ministry, video ministry. Um, but uh, starting to think about church planting, as Bob said, heading to Assessment Center, which the PCA runs uh, this summer in July. So looking forward to that. Pray for the bullers if you think of it. Um, we, would, we would love your prayers. Um, but let's turn our attention to the preached word this morning. Um, what kind of hope do you have in your future? Your life 10 years from now, does it look easier or harder? Does it look more generous or more lean? What about in American politics? Do you think that we're going to be more divided or more cooperative and collaborative? Do you think your health is going to be stronger or weaker? Will we feel that technology has freed us more? or that it has enslaved us more? What does the future look like to you? Paul McCartney in 2016, he wrote a song called Hope for the Future, and he makes it pretty clear what he thinks the future is gonna look like. He says this in his song, we will build bridges up to the sky. Hope for the future, it's coming soon enough. How much can we achieve? Hope for the future, it will belong to us if we believe, if we believe. That's, that's cute. Sounds like a, a children's Christmas song to me. <laughs> uh, I don't think I agree, if I'm honest with you. I'm kind of cynical, if I'm honest, about the future. We've got inflation. We've got student debt. We've got irreconcilable divisiveness. We've got violence locally and globally. And to have hope for the future means that you think that, in, in general, tomorrow is going to be better than today. Later is going to be better than now. And, and I think that a hopeful future can seem unfounded at times or even mythical. But what does the Bible think about the future? Is, is it scriptural to think that things are going to get better or that they're going to be worse? Is tomorrow bright or scary and bleak? I'm giving it away by the title. 
Does the Bible prescribe a path for getting there? And if it's going to be bright and good, then, then how do I know that I'm going to be a part of that? And frankly, is the future actually good enough that it's worth pursuing it? Well, this Sunday, we're going to answer those questions from the text of Zechariah chapter 8. By hearing God's, word, God's gracious words through the prophet Zechariah, we're going to get a picture of how bright the future looks for God's people. So if you would turn your attention to God's word with me, uh, please stand as this word is read. And if you'd like to turn to this in your Bible, I would recommend it. Uh, it's on page 464 in your pew Bibles. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in, in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the, foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong." For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace." 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So Zechariah, who we are reading today, if you want to keep your Bible open, I'd, like I said, I'd recommend that. Um, he's one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, and his original audience was the returning exiles, the returning Israelite exiles who were coming back from Babylon. So this is a word for God's people, covenant Jews. And in Zechariah's time, the Israelites had been released by King Cyrus to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that God had had them build, but was lying in ruins when they returned there. Zechariah writes to them because uh, they had started to rebuild the temple, but it hadn't really gone according to plan. There were problems everywhere. The second temple that they were building, it wasn't looking nearly as grand as the previous temple. They faced taunting and even procedural red tape from surrounding governors to the point where they literally let the project sit for 10 or 20 whole years. And God had been sensing all along that the returning people were not leaning their full weight of trust into him. So God sent prophets like Zechariah to rebuild their confidence as they rebuilt the temple for him. So that's, that's context, right? That's background of Zechariah. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, here are the three points for the sermon today. The future of God's people. What does it look like? The future of God's people. Then he'll make sure the future comes. He will make sure the future comes. And then what are the building blocks of that future? So let's look at the text to read and actually just, just enjoy the picture of the future that Zechariah offers. Verse 3 is an immediate encouragement God says, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This is a tremendous statement on God's part because the presence of God was absent since the sacking of Jerusalem 70 years earlier. When the temple was destroyed, it wasn't because God was defeated by the enemy, but because he sat in judgment of the wickedness of Israel and the unjust practices that were happening by the people. God couldn't possibly live down in the midst of unrepentant sin. So he withdrew his presence for a time. And even while God remained committed to Israel, he drew back to discipline them and to show them what life would be like if they didn't have to think about God anymore. Now, though, notice that God is reversing this withdrawal, finally. God is coming back to them. And the city that was destroyed because God left, now it's being rebuilt and filled with God's presence once again. This had to be just a tremendous confidence boost to the Israelites. It'd be like uh, seeing the White House rebuilt after, uh, let's say, Canada invaded and hauled us all off to the Northern Territories or something like that. 
It's ridiculous, I know. But when, when the President of the United States gets back and says, I'm going to live in D.C. again, that's a victory, right? That means security again. That means we're back. And when God lives in Jerusalem, it means really good things for his people, too. Look again at the future vision that we receive from verse 4. It says, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. What happens when God lives in his city? His faithful ones live long in the land, just as he had promised them. You are so safe, so food secure, so healthy, so prosperous, so unharassed by your enemies. The old men and old women in your country remain with you for, for a great many years. There are no premature deaths or sequestering the elderly to the corners of society. They remain sober in mind and in judgment and maintain their independence well enough to be the wise and seasoned members of the town square that they were meant to be. Life is good even in advanced age when God returns to Zion. And the same is true of the youngest generation. Look in verse 5. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. In the city that belongs to God, kids play in the same streets where all the kids are running and playing. The elders sit and watch so there is, there's plenty of safety for them. They're not goofing off. They're not getting into trouble. They're not cooped up at home because the streets are a dangerous place. Kids get to be kids. They get to enjoy freedom and, and play and do it with the care of the generations older than them witnessing this enjoyment of life. It kind of reminds me of the picture of the Shire, the big feast that they have in the Shire in Lord of the Rings. Everybody from the oldest to the youngest are just outside enjoying, enjoying celebrations and festivities together. And then the last one that I'm going to bring up, and I would say my favorite vision of the future with God, is found in verse 19 down the page. The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. The Israelites, they were in the custom of celebrating these four fasts in specific months of the year. And I didn't read it, but in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, it says, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? In other words, they had been keeping these two particular fasts, the fifth and the seventh month, just for these recent years of the exile, just for the last 70 years. And it says that these fasts were to mourn, to weep. They're not meant to atone for your sins, but they are, they're a real tangible way to recognize that even your food is not an entitlement. You're not guaranteed food and that you would be totally lost without God. But in Zechariah 8, these regular rhythms of fasting and mourning, they're not just going to cease. They're going to be transformed into, into feast days. Mourning will become celebration. Sorrow will become joy. Desolation will be filled with abundance. This is what the future looks like when God is in the city. Playing and safety in the streets together. 
and feasting where there once was fasting. And I want that future. It's beautiful, and I want to be there. And I hope you want that kind of a future too. So if we want that kind of future, now for point, point two, we need to be sure that this future is actually going to be ha- happening, that it's a reality. God will make sure that future comes. So far, you know, it's, it's evident that when God is in the city, the future looks bright. A lot of beautiful things that we've seen. But to be honest, Paul McCartney tried to say some of the same things. He made his vision of the future look pretty bright too, didn't he? He tried to give us hope for his version of the future. And if any old vision pops into somebody's head, then it doesn't make it real, does it? Every single infomercial you've ever seen, uh, it seems to have a bright future if you just purchase this Snuggie, for instance, right? Uh, Does it make it true? Is your life going to be better in the future if you own a Snuggie? Yeah, okay, well, forget I said anything. (laughs) The problem I see is actually, it's actually certainty that this is going to be true. No one but God can tell you that what they say should happen or is likely to happen actually will happen. No one but God can tell you that the future will get better with any certainty. God is the only one. And we believe that what God tells us will happen, that it is certain because it is God who's going to make it happen. It's by his strength And he's honest, so therefore what he says will be certain as long as we cling to him as his faithful children. And and let's confirm this certainty from the text. I want to start by doing this. I want to start by noting how God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. It says he calls himself the Lord of hosts 18 times in just 23 verses. Why is his name so important? Why Lord of hosts and not just God? Well, the form of the word Lord that's used is God's covenant name. Notice the all caps there. It's his covenant name, his personal name, Yahweh, that he uses to connect himself, to bind himself to his people. And then add on Lord of hosts, which is like the heavenly host, Uh, his armies of angels. The word hosts means armies. So God's name demonstrates that he's committed to you, just like a family member is committed to you, but he also has the might and the strength that no earthly power can stand against. So together, this name, Lord of hosts, it's a way of saying, you have nothing to be afraid of. I love you and I have supreme power. It's like he's saying, I got you more than you'll ever know. So let's, let's give several examples then of God's personal strength at work from Zechariah 8. In verse 2, he says that he is jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Very interesting word choices, I think, but the idea is that it conveys is that his passion, his passion for being with his people, it, it will crush anyone who wants to get in the way. Nothing will hold him back as he re-enters into his city. Then in verse 6, I love this. Uh, In verse 6 it says, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, 
meaning the hearers who are listening to Zechariah, should it also be marvelous in my sight? God is saying essentially, you find that a big deal? Are you surprised by that? This is what I do. This might seem marvelous to you, but this is, this is the way I am. This is how I operate. I can't be stopped from coming near to my people. And as though that statement wasn't enough to prove that God was going to secure the future for God's people, he goes on in verses 7 and 8 and says, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That last phrase, in the midst of Jerusalem, he's going to save them to there. But that's exactly where he said he was going to dwell, in the midst of Jerusalem. So he'll bring everybody, all his people, right to where he is. God wants to gather even the most scattered people to live with him. So what that means is that if you belong to God, you, you can't wander too far away. Or you can't be scattered too far away from him. He can always save you back to him. And then this phrase in verse 8, they shall be my people and I will be their God. You probably have heard this verse throughout the Bible, maybe first in Exodus, right? But this version of it is actually a reference to another prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet just before the exile, leading up to the time when the Israelites were taken away, okay? So this is on the other side of the exile, Jeremiah 32, is, it, this is what the quote comes from, and it was written just as the exile was beginning, but the prophet foresaw a time when they would return to Jerusalem, and he says this, I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety, says Jeremiah. They will be my people, and I will be their God. So fast forward again to Zechariah's day. He's referencing back to a previous prophecy before the exile, and it's meant to bring certainty to this people. He's, he's recognizing this so that he can basically say, in, in the words of God, I said I would bring you back, and I did it, and I am doing it. God is both faithful and capable. But even more important, uh, both Jeremiah and Zechariah, this, this verse makes it really obvious that the future vision that we've been talking about thus far, it cannot stand without God actually in it. If we want feasts rather than fasts, but don't want God, then we have neither the feast nor God. We cannot and we will not be indifferent to God's presence in our midst. We will cling to him more than we cling to the blessings that come from him. We will desire for him to be our God. And from all of this, it's pretty clear that it is God alone who intends to secure this future that we've read about. Nobody else is capable of bringing this amount of certainty to God's people. God alone can bring this beautiful future to us. So if God alone makes sure that that future comes, what are the building blocks that he wants to use for that future? God doesn't use a fast forward button where he gives all these gifts to his people right away. 
He didn't immediately wipe out all the enemies. He didn't establish the city of God right in that moment, even though he could have. Because he wanted to get there over time. And he wanted to use us for the sake of his glory. We have a role to play. We are the building blocks of the future. Now, there's a reason why I call this third point the building blocks of the future and not methods to obtain the future. Right? Building blocks are a better term because they're like, they're like raw materials. The analogy works like this. Building blocks are the things that a builder like God uses to build something. We are the building blocks, not the builders of the future. So all this to say, the actions I'm about to outline in a second here, they are in no way the conditions you need to meet to achieve your future. I don't think I can say that enough, that it is God who secures the future. We are his materials, his agents. He uses us to build the future. So what does it actually mean then to be a building block of the future? How does he intend to use us? And this passage makes that clear as well. I'm going to summarize verse 9 that says, let your hand be strong so that the temple might be built. This is how God says, I'm using you, Israelites, my people, and I need you to stay faithful in preparing a place for me. God wants our everyday, ongoing, simple but challenging, and hidden acts of faith and righteousness to stay the course, to build on the same firm foundation that has already been laid, to do it with conviction and do it with love, but most of all, to do it in God's presence. And then God goes on to make it even more explicit how this is going to work in verses 16 and 17. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate. Notice how every single item on that list is in some way that we are supposed to treat one another about horizontal relationships. If we make right relationships with one another, then we enact God's righteousness on earth. We build the city for his dwelling by the way we treat one another. And we'll come back to that in a few moments here. But first we need to understand, does this apply to me? How does this apply to us? Because you'll remember at the beginning I said Zechariah was a prophet to the Israelites as they returned to Jerusalem. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not returning to Jerusalem. But they weren't at historically high confidence levels as they faced setback after setback when this message was first received. They needed to be edified by the word of God. And this whole exhortation from Scripture so far, it's been interpreted in light of their situation. It's been about the future of the Israelites coming out of a period of oppression and fasting and, and feeling like a bone out of socket. So how about you? 
How about the contemporary church? The church in America in 2022, I think it does feel like a bone out of socket. We too need to be edified by the word of God because I don't think that we have the highest of confidences about our future. Just this week we've seen tremendous backlash against the leaked Supreme Court's unofficial opinion on Roe v. Wade. I've been reading tremendously vitriolic comments faced at Christians. Something that a lot of Christians would love to rejoice in. It feels like we're pressured to stay silent because of the heat we're taking for our stance. And this is just one of many different areas where our faith is under threat. We need confidence that God can actually secure anything positive for our future. And even then, what about our witness to the world that seems to be dwindling? I understand why one might see a dim future for Christianity in America. It could look like we're losing a safe footing as Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting Christians as we continue toward our own future. It could feel like we are in our own exile. Or perhaps we feel like Christians are doing a terrible job representing Christ to the culture. At least that's what it seems like. But that is not the view of the scriptures. The conversion of the nations and the coming to God of the world, it will not be from our influence over the culture. It will not be through political victory or through any form of success as defined by the world. Instead, according to Zechariah, the nations are going to come to the city of God of their own volition and their own accord, and they're going to desire to join us in our pursuit of God. Look at the end of the, of the passage with me. I'm going to read verse 23. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The world is going to see that God is with his people. And they're going to seek out God's people and they're going to ask them, can we come to the city of God with you? The world will not be conquered by might. It will be won over by the evidence of God's presence. And the evidence of God's presence is faithful believers demonstrating that God is with us by our conduct. God is building us into a city of righteousness for the world to see. If I'm honest, it's a little bit convicting. But I'm, I'm truly glad to be used by God in this way. The globe is going to witness the way you and I treat one another, the way we live in righteous relationships with others around us. And they're going to be drawn to it. Not to tolerate one another, not to affirm one another, but act in righteousness toward one another. Because in, in the eyes of the world, nobody else lives for that much love for each other. There must be something different about those Christians because the only reward that they seek is God himself. That's confusing, and I want to be a part of it. So the future is bright, not just for you and I, but for the world, because God is building a city through our building block lives. Now there's one tremendous caveat to the story of Zechariah. 
He said all of these things about the future, about how beautiful it will be, about how it will be God who makes sure that future comes, and exactly what the building blocks of that future are. But here's the catch. That future didn't come. At least it didn't come yet. You see, the temple that was being built in Zechariah's era was, was destroyed in the year A.D. 70. And they didn't experience the peace that this passage promised. Does that mean God failed? Not at all. Not at all. God has not forgotten about his promise, and he, didn't, he did not fail to dwell with his people either. John chapter 2 Verses 19 through 21 will help us better understand exactly how God dwelled with his people. It says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. The presence of God is Jesus Christ. And this quote from John helps us see that the temple of God is Jesus' body. God has dwelt with his people in Jesus ever since he came down from heaven. And he continues to dwell with his people as the Holy Spirit lives inside all Christians. You and me, a living temple that God has built to dwell in. The temple's structure is not actually the fulfillment of God's presence among his people. It's, it's Jesus. It's God incarnate dwelling in the midst of his people. And we have the advantage of looking at history and seeing that God has been fulfilling his promise to be with his people by sending his son in our midst. And in this way, we can actually now rightly interpret Zechariah and that it, all these promises apply to us. It's just as true of us. The promise that God secures our future of salvation is fulfilled in Christ. The promise that he empowers us to live as building blocks, living stones, as Peter calls us, is fulfilled in Christ. And the promise to be a testimony to the nations of the faithfulness and righteousness of God is fulfilled in Christ. All of this blessing is ours in Christ. But what of the kids running around and playing? And what of the elders, uh, the elder men and women living long-lasting lives in the town square? There's a, there's a future city that we have yet to lay our eyes upon where all these things will be true. All of the promises of the future are still in our future as well. And our future is bright we share in the same future that was promised through Zechariah, and we look forward to it together. That city we read about in Revelation 21, and it says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And it's in that city that all of these promises will be fulfilled and true, and it's secured for us in Christ. Our future and Zechariah's future, they're knit together to make them part of one massive, centuries-long story of God claiming his people to be his own and coming to dwell with them in his city because that's where we belong and that's where he belongs. God belongs in his city forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for building us as living stones into your dwelling place. God, would you make us a light to the nations by our conduct? Um, Would you thwart our own wisdom? Would you humble our hearts? God, we look forward to the day when uh, we get to live in that city face-to-face with Jesus himself um, and experience all the blessings that come with your presence. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.